Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. On episode 11 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I speak with Head of Athletic Development at St. Peter's High School, Tom Green. Tom has a foot in both coaching and research camps as the youth researcher for science for sport and an academy strength and conditioning coach at Championship Football Club West Bromwich Albion and Premier League Rugby Club Worcester Warriors. I was keen to draw on Tom's experience in both academy and school settings uh, and getting his thoughts on where he feels research is failing coaches and how to tackle these issues. His use of parkour and gymnastics as a means of mitigating the negative impact of early specialisation and how to develop speed through gameplay and its effectiveness compared to more traditional speed programs that strength and conditioning coaches might be used to using. Thank you for listening and let's get on with the episode. How are you doing today, Tom? Yeah, very good. Um, enjoying the week off, so that's the benefit of working in the school and the weather's been okay as well, so uh, it's always good just to have some time to wind down and um, yeah, everything is, is busy, hectic, so it's nice just to have some time to myself and record a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's nothing else you'd rather be doing. Um, so for those of the listeners who don't know, you just talk a little bit more about your role at St. Peter's and uh, other roles that you've got going on. Yeah, so um, currently I am the Head of Athletic Development at St. Peter's School in Gloucester. Um, this was probably formally made, uh, not famous, but people know James Baker, who was in that role. Um, after that, he left to, uh, to work in, in, is it Dota, isn't it, in the Spire Academy? Uh, Doha, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, in the Spire Academy. I should know that. I speak to him weekly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, after that, Will Pennell took over and he's gone to Arsenal. So it's it's been fantastic to have contact with both of them. Um, my role is is quite unique. I feel I'm very lucky to have it. I have a lot of contact time with with um, the children between the ages of year seven and six form two. So that's 18. Seven, uh, so from 11, 12 to 18. So quite a wide array there. Um, and as well as that, I work at Gloucester Rugby Club as an academy strength and conditioning coach, um, head of sports science at a feeder academy for West Bromwich Albion, working with children from 9 to 16. And I publish all of the youth research for science for sport. So um, busy and, and also get to see a wide array of children from uh, grassroots from the age of nine all the way through to entering a senior contract so it's it's a it's a good good uh, canvas to see all of those opportunities for development along the way that's brilliant so as somebody who works in both fields in terms of getting research published but also being in the trenches and seeing kids mature day to day week to week month to month what are some of the common issues you see perhaps with either how research is published or presented and the interpretations people take or, for example, can't take from that research? That's, that's really interesting. I think one, one thing that's helped me in that, uh, being able to break down the research, it has actually been my Science for Sport role. We have a, like a practical takeaways section, um, and it, it basically outlines the study, what the study says, what the results were, and what you should take away from it, or what you can implement straight away. And 
I'm not trying to, to um, sidetrack the question, but then to bring it back is actually what is the research saying? When you read a piece of research, what is it giving me? You know, how, how can I implement it? Look at the methodology in particular. If it's a, a plyometric intervention and I look at ground contact times, great, that, that's helpful. But it's again, it's devoid of the context. Can I give this to my athletes at 14, 15 year old? Um, probably can work in this school I see them for two or three hours a week so a lot of what I see published um, the kids are doing anyway and I'd say they've got a high training age compared to them in those studies and so I have to look at it and and go over it and, and kind of think right how would I adjust it or I could pull it back down for a younger year group um, I think it's that's where that coaching experience comes in. And I think more, perhaps more publications need to come from, from coaches with, with the help of universities. Um, it's something that I'm certainly looking to do moving forward into the next year is getting things out there, um, getting one piece out there at the moment, which is, has been submitted, which is um, a games-based approach to plyometrics. So how we use games to teach plyometrics from children, key stage three, so kind of year seven to nine, um, you know, just little things like that, little little games, skipping games, jumping games, tag variations, all of those different things. How can we use those to teach a fundamental movement skill or, a, you know, or a plyometric task, all of those things. So I think it's about reading it and then making it applicable to your, your learner, if that makes sense. And on the subject of making things applicable to your learner, when... We spoke at the LTAD conference a few weeks ago. You said that you were trialing some stuff with uh, the kids you work with where you had one group who was doing more um, games-based approach to developing speed and yeah. another group were using perhaps what we would consider more a traditional speed program, if you will. You had some really interesting results with that. Do you want to talk through the process of what got you started in terms of using these two different methods? Yeah, yeah. So um, I came from my, my master's degree at Hartbury was um, had a really big kind of motor learning approach to it. We were lucky that we had Franz Bosch come in for two or three days and I got to spend a lot of time with him. Um, we had Keith Davids who came down who wrote the book um, called Understanding um, Sports Pedagogy. It was a really great book. Um, I was lucky as well to have two people I work with in Ben Droy and James McCarran. James is now at um, Man City. He's the Man City's uh, females coach there. Um, and they were really big on the motor learning side of things. And they gave me a lot of, uh, they introduced me to a lot of new concepts and theory. Well, well, maybe not new concepts. They've been around for a long time, but a lot of currently in stuff. And looking at explicit, implicit drills, um, how these can teach, preferences of children um, at certain ages and how we can then manipulate the task um, contextual interference all of those different things and and actually I found no you know both groups so having a, a typical kind of speed approach where it would be uh, war drills a skips um, and just working through that those kind of acceleration mechanics top speed mechanics compared to putting those into chase based games and games where for example a game like rounders where they'd hit the ball and they'd have to sprint 50 meters and stop in a zone i find no difference at all if anything 
the results for the um, for the implicit group. Those who were training in a game-based environment were far greater. The improvements in speed were far greater. And, and this is the kind of research that needs to be published. And I need to crack on and do that. I need someone who is competent with stats to help do that because it's the one that I'm just a little bit woof um, and doing kind of um, smallest worthwhile change and effect sizes stuff like that I'm good with but to actually write that up into a into a paper um, that's what needs to be more done more of unfortunately it's all a time it's, it's just down to time a lot of it and and making it you know and, and having that 30 minutes a week, two hours a week, whatever it is, to sit down and put aside for that, I, I don't currently have, um, which is, is a constraint or a barrier to, to putting out that kind of research. Um, but it's interesting, and the kids thoroughly enjoy the games-based approach more than the, the drill-based approach, which I think, as a 12-year-old, as a I would have, improved, would have preferred too, so yeah. Yeah, I think oftentimes as coaches with this sort of knowledge on um, the f developing the physical skills, it's almost easy for part of the back of our brain to be like, right, okay, I know you don't enjoy it, but my job is to make you faster. And therefore, these technical drills are what's going to get us there. Well, actually, as you said, part of the adaptation of speed is actually intent to move quickly. We've all designed drills or games and then you're having to tell the athlete to move fast versus, as you said, the intent you'll get off them when they're trying to sprint away from their partner in a game of tag or whatever. Oh, must, yeah, massively so. And I think talk about intent is a key thing and, and we want to create that and we want to make it relevant to a, a scenario as well. I think asking someone to be motivated just to sprint against themselves is tough. If they're being chased or if they're chasing an object, or if you are giving them a point a points rule or a timed run, um, it's far more it's far more enjoyable for them. And the other thing as well is is I think the the pursuit of you know ideal form in acceleration mechanics and linear speed it changes so much with growth and maturation anyway. So by the time you finally nailed it down, you know it, it takes time. And then they, they grow and they come back after a six week holiday and you're dealing with someone who's now six foot one and looks like a giraffe on ice and you've got to go again, you know, and I think it's far easier to, to pay, um, to, to get them motivated to run, but have a good balance of kind of close and open, open drills. And that's how, that's how I approach my, my speed change direction training is, giving them a taste of what good looks like, allowing them to practice that and then putting it into quite a chaotic environment and seeing if it comes out. And if it does, reward it, talk about it, break it down. If it doesn't, it didn't, it wasn't time to. And that's just the way I look at it. Yeah. I like that. It's not necessarily, as you said, that the drill's wrong, that the kids are wrong or whatever. As you said, it's just not that right time yet. In regards to your, as you said, your greater understanding of motor control, how do you how does this influence your the strength and conditioning side of your program so for example uh we spoke briefly about how the ssc setup at st peter's you've started to use more parkour and gymnastics so what other areas of the program have you found that it influences um yes yeah, so i suppose the thing for me is that i've got um got a lot of access to the children's grades 
um, and their exam timetable, things like that, periods of stress. Naturally, they report and uh, injuries, illness generally go up around those times anyway. And so as a coach, I will periodize things that are, you know, a bit more fun and a bit less taxing from a, from a cognitive point of view. So the drills will be less drill based, less being talked at, if you like, a bit less explicit. And it'll be more, right, there's a box, go get over it creatively, do it three or four times, every time it's got to be a bit different. Or teach someone in front of you, behind you to do that. Um, rather than me there saying, right, I want you to, to vault over it, I want your hands here and both legs are going to go here. It's, it's less, it's, it's rudimentary still. I'd say it's, it's not worthy of anything that I would say is hugely unique, but I think it's an interesting concept to shape task and to shape certain um, movements around that. So periods of high academic stress, we know that cognitive function is generally going to be decreased after that exam or after that leading up to that. Their priorities are not their squat when they are revising. They do not care. They just want to blow off some steam. And if I can get back 20, 30% of what I want to see in the session and they can blow that off, I keep their buy-in, I keep their interest, and I keep their athletic development ticking over in those periods, um, during during which, you know, I am a bit less of a, an authoritative figure and more of a perhaps um, counsellor or mental guidey in through those times rather than being another source of information to them. They don't want to know, you know, if if they are squatting below parallel. They they don't do not care. They do not care at that point of view, and my job isn't to make make life hard for them. It's to help them to progress, you know, both academically and as a and as a sportsman and sportswoman. So yeah, I like that. I like, and in terms of in terms of you saying obviously guiding the kids through that process, a lot of the kids will at the ages you work with them, they may be, for example, mentioning to you in the gym about I don't know life advice, job advice. We spoke off air about the advice you would give your younger self and how might yeah. this might differ or be the same as what you might give to your students. So my first question is, what advice would you give to your younger self? And my second question is, if I'm one of your athletes and I say, oh, I, I love sport, I want to do something involved in sport, what career advice do you have? Um, what would that be? So the, the advice to myself, I think, would be to relax a lot more just to chill out and ride the kind of cultural wave of wherever I start to work and be more, uh, observe it more and to try and understand why things are done the way they are instead of, not to say that I would go in and rock the boat, but if I saw something and I, I didn't get it, I was, I was more baffled by the fact that I didn't get it rather than asking why. And I think that's something that with time, you get that wisdom and you understand to not question you know, the why and try and understand the context a bit more. I say relax more because I was, I wanted to, the minute I found out kind of what I wanted to do, I attacked it far too heavy and I read everything I could. I learned everything I could and it made me very book smart, but it made me devoid of that wisdom and that coaching experience. And it's, it's doing both. I think at once is, is really um, important. Uh, the second piece of advice I would, would give myself is to find a mentor um, who wasn't necessarily from a sports science background either. I think scientists are quite objective 
and they have you know their own agenda uh, to fulfill or their own idea of where they want you to be and they are they, they don't think about the empathy behind that they try to push you into a role where you know stick you in the middle of um, you know middle of the country or go abroad but actually you lose your support system or your family and your friends for a job that's not really for you um, and I think finding someone who is empathetic but also has a, a good understanding of just you know when a good opportunity is a good opportunity um, and pushes you on to do that and to be brave but also acts as a seatbelt when you are you know you're not you're not sure and instead of pushing you in there to say you know i put tom into this position he's he's dealt with now he's making a way actually find out a bit more about my motivations to be in the industry and my you know what i'd like to do long term i think finding people of a similar you know a mentality is, is not a bad thing and they don't have to come from strength and conditioning um and you mentioned so students asking for career careers advice in a sport background yep um i think you know i got into the industry with the, the romantic idea like i said that i'd be taking off seconds off 100 meter time and i'd be adding 20 kilograms onto a squat all of those different things and it's quite a, a laborious task and I, I fell in love with that idea um and five years into unpaid work I quickly realized that that wasn't the reality and that it was not also sometimes not a great paying industry either. Um, so I would never ever put someone off of doing it. I think it's a fantastic role. I think if you are passionate about it and you enjoy your work, that's a big part of life. I think it's, it's important to find a job you love. At the same time, I would defend the idea that sport can be seen as an easy route and as an easy passage don't agree with that and I think anyone who gets stuck in that trap of feeling that they are going to go to university come out with a you know a 2-2 two -two as, a, as a degree or less like a second degree or and not to put that down but it's so competitive if you're not pushing a very high um, academic standard with experience so if you've got three years of you know hundreds of hours of coaching because that's what you're up against um, I'm by no means naive to that and, and I will let people know quite soon quite quickly that's fine you want to be a physiotherapist are you ready to spend you know 10 hours a week unpaid on the side of the pitch when it's freezing cold tipping it down you you are ready for that yes and quickly you can find out if someone really does want that or if they just want to go straight to the top which isn't always realistic as we we both know Brilliant. And in terms of, as you said, obviously the landscape has probably changed from when you got into SNC to obviously now. Um, yeah. What made you want to get into strength and conditioning in the first place? So what is your why? So I think that cultures thrive on, on diversity. Um, I am always, I've always been someone as both a person and, and as an athlete who likes that person-centered approach I like to know who my coach was and I liked my coach to know who I was um, I think I went into a lot of strength and conditioning environments when I was before I even knew what strength and conditioning was really and I saw it was quite a macho testosterone field environment and I saw myself as being different and actually caring about the person behind the journey 
um, uh, and like I say, drawn into the romanticism of being a bit of a nerd, but a bit of a cool nerd, because if you're <laughs> in the sports world, you know you're a bit cool. Um, and actually, it's just of all of those different things being, being um, you know, being sensitive to the individual, being someone different, being a different personality that they used to see in the gym, for me was quite important. Um, and luckily going to conferences recently you know, spending more time talking to people a lot of the people working at the top are very normal um, and or working at a high level or with kids are different to how I first saw them or saw the industry if you'd like um, I think that that being that match, macho manly masculine side has dripped out a bit and actually quality is prevailing and people of not necessarily uh, the stereotype of strength and conditioning coach, tight t-shirt, huge muscles, all of that. I think I think that's dripping out, and that's not that's not a good or bad thing. I just wanted to be someone different in the industry who wasn't that kind of person who could appeal to the people who didn't find that attractive as an athlete as a package. If that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Ironically, I was going to say, when I first started strength and conditioning and pe- I said to people, this is what I want to do, they're like, oh, do you not do you not need to be a bit, bit bigger for that? And, like, you know, I was almost like, shit, maybe I do need to be a bit bigger. I don't know. Um, whereas, <laughs> um, whereas, as you said, obviously, ironically, if I was making that mistake when I was first getting into the industry, it's very easy, for example, for parents to confuse strength and conditioning or the science of strength and conditioning with and this is meant as not as meant as a disrespectful thing but with personal training which may be geared more towards fat loss or muscle gain so my yeah. question is how do we spoke offline about perhaps not best practice with um when it comes to strength and conditioning for youth athletes how do parents who have no concept of what strength and conditioning is besides just wanting the best for their kid how do they go about making sure their kids in safe hands? Um, I think that comes down to that's a it's a multifaceted thing. Where as coaches, I'd say we need to do more about sharing the, the good work that we're doing, making parents more aware. Um, if you are in academy positions, um, where I work with Gloucester and West Brom, they do a lot on education with the parents, which I think is fantastic. I think you have to do that, and and hope that word of mouth. Is a is a strong enough thing where actually someone says my you know my child um, is struggling with this oh I know just the person you know refer to that I think the the UKSE as we mentioned you can find your, your coaches on um, the UKSE website and I think um, as a as a as an industry um, or as a as an organisation should I say the UKSEA, um not to say could do more. But I'd like to see them link more with the athletes that they have or have gone under that kind of EIS scheme or, or reach success by a coach who has a UKCA accreditation. Go through that journey and publish that and put it on a billboard. And I know that's a very naive and narrow-minded, not narrow-minded, but an idealistic way of looking at it. Um, and I know that the UKCA does a great job at promoting um, you know what it's doing and its events but actually to make it down to the grassroots to make it a household name I think would do great things for for society seeing the UKC as a 
as a need, you know, and as a, as a desired um, organisation moving forward. I, I think the idea you mentioned about uh, billboards is actually perhaps a lot better than people give it credit for, because if you look at how many awful um, training programmes, diets that celebrities endorse, and, you know, I hear from even the girls that I work with at the school that I'm based at, they're like, oh, have you heard about so-and-so's programme or this diet? And you're like, well, if work can spread that popular, uh, that much from such a popular figure that, you know, a bloody schoolgirl knows it, then yeah. there's certainly room to explore that possibility. I mean, we spoke about off-air about being part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. And there you have, well, ironically, getting people who are well-known to endorse stuff does do in this day and age of Instagram and social media, it does do a really good job of promoting it, whether or not that product is good or bad. You, yeah. you mentioned about, for example, the um, filtration out of this sort of bodybuilder type strength and conditioning um, facade, if you will. So what has influenced or who has been the biggest influence on your coaching career today? Um, so I've had... I've had loads of different people from loads of different backgrounds. I've had um, some strength and conditioning coaches who I currently work with um, who are just love the gym. They just love that whole life. And there is, there is a great source of inspiration from those people who, when you turn up, they are in there. They are, like you say, in the trenches, but they're doing more than just that. They are training four or five times a day. They're killing themselves to to get a point that, you know, a hard work, a work ethic is necessarily and desirable. Um, and I've also had people who, from a coaching background, whose idea of fun is to sit down with a coffee and have a little chat and an open. And I think there have been inspirations throughout in both a coaching domain um, from strength and conditioning background that just picking picking ideas and picking bits of of personality from loads of people um, and I, you know I, I mentioned earlier it's, it's a bit cheesy but just kind of riding the wave and just finding inspiration from different people and understanding why they do what they do um, and then thinking how can that link to to my own ideas of what I want my strength and conditioning practice to look like so there have been people um, out there who you know, who I think do, do great things. Um, but I'd say the my main inspirations come from seeing good practice, seeing bad practice, seeing good and bad people in the industry and picking the good and the bad from them and then trying to understand that. I think it's, I've, I've dodged the question massively, um, but actually that's, that's the answer. I don't think it's as simple as one person. I think it's been many across many different experiences some who i've had worked with for a year some who i've worked with for two hours it can be as simple as that the way i look at it but yeah no that makes sense um, the athletes sorry one thing i've forgot there is the athletes as well you know working with the kids and you know being being um facilitating their journey through what i know and also learning off of them, it has been fantastic for me as a as a source of inspiration. Probably the biggest actually is to see someone succeed and understand why is 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 a big one. Brilliant. You you mentioned sort of shortly before that about seeing good practice, bad practice, good people, bad people. One of the um, 
and I hasten to use the phrase buzzword, but I'm going to anyway. One of the sort of buzzwords in strength and conditioning is our we're in the art of making better athletes and better people, which I totally agree with for what it's worth. But often that sort of that's our little sort of Twitter snippet, whatever. Um, so my next question is, if making athletes better people is important to you, what steps do you take in order to make this happen or increase the likelihood of this happening? Um comes down to time, massively comes down to time. If you have an hour a week with a group of individuals, I think you can drop in some little people, you know, some leadership skills, all of that. But I think understand your remit. If you do have an hour with them, a lot of your attention will need to go onto that athletic development side. You are not a life's coach. You're not a sports psychologist. You are a strength and conditioning coach. So get them to move better and progress, progress strength. If, like myself, I've got a lot of autonomy and I've got three hour, two or three hours a week with the, with the kids, um, I'll do a lot of, um, first, a lot of work with their parents, try and give them a lot of, of information on what we're doing and try to get the buy-in from home. That's important to shape their behaviour. Um, I make the parents aware of when the kids aren't really um, giving it their all, and that doesn't necessarily mean effort, but that means behaviour. And that can be a academic thing, not just in my session, because I find a lot of the kids in my sessions are fantastically behaved, but for their maths teacher, for their English teacher, they can be a bit of a menace. And that's not good enough for me. I don't like that. And that's, that's going to hold them back long term as an athlete, because it'll be that time where they are trialing at an academy and they think no one's watching them and they, they throw that bottle on the floor or they spit that chewing gum out next to the bin instead of putting it in the bin they get caught and they get let go um and that's a belief of mine so i do a lot around um sports psychology around emotional control um like i say leadership putting people in difficult places and giving them tools to get out um understanding you know what it means what social responsibility they have as a talented individual and I don't use the word I don't use the word talented with them, but as an individual who has been identified as being gifted and um, in an academy set, they have a, a social responsibility to drip down high standards to the rest of their their peer group, and that's interesting for me getting them to think that way. On the and again, this is perhaps a harsh question because you're probably not the person who names the. Um the scholarship program or the scholarship scheme. Um, but back in my school days, I remember there being a gifted and talented program. And uh, one of my, without meaning to get on my soapbox, one of my rants comes up from the fact that every, every kid athlete is elite these days. And you mm -hmm. said you don't use the word talented in front of them, which I really like. So my two part question is, especially when you're dealing with, for example, um, young athletes at West Brom or with Gloucester rugby is, how do you keep them grounded when obviously they're in the setups because there is some talent there, obviously. And yeah. my second part of this question is how do you encourage what I would describe as elite behaviors um, for want of a better word? So rather than focusing on their actual athletic talent or their technical talent, how do you focus on elite behaviors and how do you keep their feet grounded when, for example, other people, whether it's parents, coaches, whatever, maybe giving them that recognition and elevating them to this higher status? Um, 
That's a, that's a very good question. <laughs> it's a very long-winded one as well. You're going to have some time to think about that. No, so having um, one working with, with Gloucester and West Brom, obviously these opinions are of what I see, not of the club, so that's important to, to put, a, put aside, um, to put out there, sorry. But rugby and football are very different backgrounds. Um, working with the rugby players, I've, I've got a, a, really, a really good guy there called Kev Mannion. Um, who's going to be presenting at the next Charles Champion Conference. And Kev and the team of coaches at Gloucester are very good at ensuring that they are disciplined but humble um, and they are on time and they apologise, they shake your hand, they come up to you and they're accountable. If they forgot their boots, tell them, tell me or tell the coach you forgot your boots, you're sorry and what you're going to do about it. Don't come with a problem, come with a solution. Um, over time those behaviours become um, habit and the the people there, the the hard work ethic um, coupled with a desire to please which you get from from rugby players a lot of the time anyway um, coupled with a real mix of good cop, bad cop and you see in the coaches um, myself and the the coaches I have around me in the strength and conditioning we're quite different we have um, different ways of approaching it, and actually, that appeals to the wider personalities of the rugby team. So we um, have people come to us for certain things, and they'll go to the other coach for something else, and they naturally identify that. We just fall into that role. With football, um, I think I think it's improved. I think more could be done to understand um, load volume relationship and the importance of being on time. Um, and taking the warm-up seriously, little things like that, that isn't quite done all the time. And being a good person pays dividends because I always like to use the analogy of uh, taking something back to a a shop. And if I go there and I go up to the customer service assistant and I'm angry and I'm I'm loaded, they're not going to help me as much as if I'm, uh, you know... um, if I'm kind of caring and if I'm empathetic and understand, you know what, like this, I don't know, this, this mug I've got here, um, it's, you know, it's broken. It's broken on my way back or I've dropped it or anything like that. If I go in angry that the mug's not good enough, they're not going to help me. If I come at it from a human, as a human, and I make it relatable and I am accountable, but also say, you know what, it's not the mug's fault. I've been a bit of an idiot. They're more likely to help me. I think football could could be a bit more like that in that the parents need to not blow as much smoke at the at the children. If that's the nicest way to put it. Yep. I think coaches need to become um, a bit more aware of of the load uh, and volume relationship, more specifically the role of strength and conditioning in making better footballers, not just stronger people. Yep. Um, I think that's that's been interesting for me to to observe and see. Um, and given we know so much about early specialisation and uh, the detriment and the issues associated with that, I am very surprised that there is still so much volume in football training um, with, with young children. And if a player is playing at an academy level, should they be playing grassroots still on the Saturday or Sunday? Now, there is an enjoyment factor that comes from that as well. But I think if 
if club or if academy football is not enjoyable, part of that is a problem, if, if that makes sense. And yes. I think it needs to be enjoyable um, so that they don't feel that they have their, their professionalism, they're making their way for themselves at an academy, and then their Saturday and Sunday is where they can have a bit of fun and score five or six goals. I think they need to, to bridge a bit more. Um, and if you are asking that of a child, that's fine, but be consistent with their strength and conditioning as well and their physio and their nutrition. If you want to pull away and you want it to be more fun, then the strength and conditioning, the nutrition, the physiotherapy has to be that as well. I think you, you can't do you know really heavy, intense football and then um, shy away from the, the issues that come as a result of that. So my, my next question is, again, kind of like a two-part question because I feel like you've alluded to it there. But, for example, if I was a kid and I was good enough to play for, I don't know, Queen's Park Rangers is a completely random example. If I was good enough to play for QPR, um, then how would you, as an SSC or an authority figure, say to me or my parents, look, I know you love football and I'm not trying to take that away from you, but here's what you need to do if you are going to, for example, play for QPR, play for your school, play for your Sunday league team. How would you, because obviously, as you said, it's not about being the fun sponge and saying, oh, you can't do this, but there's also got to be a realisation and education that these are the potential consequences if you, yeah. for example, football, 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 no strength, no conditioning, no other sport. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like to say I'm the fun sponge. Like <laughs> you can um, have it if you want. Yeah, well, do that's going in the bank. Um, I deal with this almost every parent's evening. So this is something that I do have with the kids in the school at the moment. Um, unfortunately, a lot of academies work on a, a commodity-based system where it's you are there to train and play for that club, and if you don't make it, you go, get throw, throw you out kind of thing. And this puts a lot of pressure on the child to be there. Um, they have, you know, access, they have school fixtures, um, they have their, their Sunday, Saturday league football with training, they have their club football uh, and all of that. And it's the same with gymnastics as well. I see it a lot in gymnastics. Um, I think some of it needs to come from the club, first and foremost. I really think that there, there needs to be an understanding, like I say, of, of that, that load relationship. Now, I picked that up, but I only picked that up through knowing my athletes and knowing what they do. So if someone's got a heavy football week, I'll know to train them a bit differently because of the conversations I have with them. I take that on my shoulders because I'm, I'm somewhere where they can lose a bit of volume, lose a bit of load, because it's not going to come from anywhere else. Um, with the parents, it comes down to um, picking your battles, um, knowing who you can educate and support and give them resources, give them things to go away and read, um, and, and making them aware of the the connotations of that and I think one thing I've got a very good PE department where I work but we're good at finding those who are early specialised you can see it in the way that they move in their comfort around things where um, where kids should be kids and they're, they're not kids it's the way I can put it and the, the another analogy I'm big on analogies is is as a, as a kid, I'd go and climb a tree and I wouldn't think of falling off. I wouldn't think of the height or I'd go and jump over some water. 
um, you know, meter and a half, two meters, whatever, and I'd be like, that's fine, I'll just go for it. And if I fall in, I fall in. You, as you get older, you lose that comfort a little bit. You might run up and, and knock back yourself and fall out and then go again. You know, you just, you build up to it a bit more than you had to when you were a kid. In the specialized kids that I see from a young age, they've already got that fear when approaching the parkour in particular, or the gymnastics, or anything where there is not a, a ball at their feet or a sprung floor to do a, a triple backflip on, they are they're lost compared to their peers. Um, and making them aware of that, the parents, is quite an interesting, quite an interesting avenue or way that I do it. To say, you know what, so-and-so is a fantastic footballer, they're a fantastic gymnast, um, their netball is incredible, but did you know that they can't catch? Or did you know that compared to their peers, they can't, um, they're not very good at working in a team in a game where there's no football, they, they, they get lost. And I think that's one way you can make the parents aware of the, the implications of too much of one thing. Um, does, does that normally hit home quite well? Or for example, like, I mean, I'd probably say up until 2011, like I was football, football, football. Um, and my old man, completely blame him for it. If something, another sport came on the TV, he'd be like, oh, what do you want to watch this rubbish for? Um, and ironically, getting injured from football is where I got into boxing and um, sprung on from there. Do you ever have parents who, for example, as you said, oh, little Timmy's really good at football but can't do a forward role. Do you ever come across like the sort of sporty parents who are like, little Timmy doesn't need to do a forward role because he's going to play for England and that's all. Did you ever come across that? Or they're sort of understanding that actually doing something that isn't the sport is actually really going to help the sport? I, f I think I've had individuals who you are talking to and it's going in one ear and out of the other. Um, for the most part, I'd say 80% actually hits home and it's a really positive experience. And we talk about how we're going to... to um, approach it and tackle it and for some people to come back in two or three weeks and say um you know tom i've or mr green I've, I've pulled out of doing this i've I've cut down a football session a week and instead i'm doing a bit of swimming or i'm doing a little bit of that's fantastic that for me is just like i love that i get really proud of that moment that's gold to me um with the parents you can uh generally know the ones who are taking on board what you're saying at the end of the day, if someone does want to be a professional football player, I'm not going to quench or kill that dream by telling them they shouldn't train for football. But I will make them aware of the fact that they are more likely to potentially become injured at a later date or the imbalances at which that sport will create will cause issues down the line. And without, without um, meaning this to sound mean, those injuries do come out. Yeah. Those who are really specialised, they suffer for it. They really do, particularly with um, kind of that shin splints or like medial yeah. tibial stress syndrome. Um, we have individuals who are injured a lot of the time and I wouldn't go up to them and be like, this is because you play a lot of football. Of course. And it, it's commonalities. So I can see that the same four or five people are getting niggles that the other multi-sport athletes are not getting. Um, and that's particularly prominent around growth as well. And we do change the programme for that. We do account for that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm only one man and I cannot do 20 different 
programmes every different week given on the fact that they aren't honest or upfront with how much football they're playing or if they aren't telling me, you know, I had a really heavy session last night. I had a boy come back and he said, oh, I ran 12 lots of 200 metres last night and we had like 30 seconds, 35 seconds to do it and then we'd have to go again. I'm thinking, wow, you must be fried. Like, you must be absolutely fried. And and I changed the programme off the back of that. I changed the way that I do things. But sometimes you're not afforded that luxury where they come and tell you that. Or yeah. Um, so, so, you know, understanding that is important. But the, the injuries, they come out. They do come out eventually. Going back to what we spoke about off air, how do you make... How do you remain professional while still getting your voice heard when it comes to uh, examples like that? So, for example, you wouldn't want to be saying to this athlete, oh, your coach is an idiot. He had you doing 12 200s. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, mm. But equally, you still want to have some kind of conversation with the coach as to, A, the impact that might have, B, maybe understanding his session a little bit more and see, obviously, you, you would hate for somebody to misinterpret what you've done with the kids, say, on the basis of what simply somebody else has said. So how do you how do you initiate that conversation with the coach or how do you build a relationship with a kid where, for example, they don't think, oh, I can't tell Mr. Green I did 12 200s or played that extra football because I'm going to get in trouble. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I think, um, I think I'd say kids can exaggerate and they will like to make out that they've done a really hard task. And actually, you know, you could run in angry, a bit like your customer service again. You know, yeah. you run in heated, and actually that's not the best way to solve things. Um, I think if we have certain individuals who are playing at a uh, national, international level, then try and get contact straight away with their coaches to understand how our programme can support their programme, sometimes not the other way around, um, because they want to play for uh, England or Wales or they're playing at that level or they're playing for West Brom, Wolves, whatever level it is. They want to do that. So I have to see my role as helping them to get there is to be the person who either picks up and says, right, if you want to get there, we need to work on your your speed or your acceleration or your strength so that when you do get there you are miles ahead of others and we can force that selection for you and we can try to get you in the best place possible and if it's the other way where they're doing a lot for their club I can pull that back for them and that comes with developing that relationship um, sometimes empowering or, or educating the individual to know um, about what they're doing um, my one criticism of strength and conditioning coaches is when when you walk out the room do they know the why do they know why they're doing certain things how it links to their performance um and i try and make that a a really common thing and the the overarching or, or end point of that is that i want them to be able to come back and tell me why their coach may have been getting them to do that rather than just the fact that they've done that um that's one reason which i i try to educate um but also finding out that you know one of your one of your talented athletes has done a hundred squats at a relatively high level, which is something that I've had before in a row. Yeah, yeah same. Um, 
I'm not going to also, I'm not the type of person who's going to be like, oh, that's fantastic. I'm sure there was a reason for it. I would say to the individual, like, don't, we're not, don't question it. I'm not going to jeopardize your chance of being there. But quite, quite frankly, I'd be like, well, that's, that's a bit silly. Like, there was no need to do that. Yeah. I'm not going to, I wouldn't tiptoe around that mm-hmm. um, because that doesn't help either. Um, but I think it's, it's like anything, being polite. Um, trying to understand rather than to criticise um, and, and building up a relationship where it, you, you tickle their ego a little bit and you say, I'm here to help you. You know, I want you to, you, you, lead, you lead the way, you kind of deal with all of that. And, and it sometimes goes the other way because we have um, individuals who are receiving three years of strength and conditioning a week and they've done so for five years. They will get into an academy position where their back squat can be 120, 130 kilograms plus, and everyone else is still goblet squatting. And it's nice to, which is no problem, by the way, it's not a problem with that, but it's nice to have it the other way around where they ask you what you're doing with them. Yeah. Um, because inevitably, you know, they would be detraining them if they were not looking at their, their weekly norms and adhering to them in their program. So it works both ways. Um, but I think having having a conversation, building that rapport, um, and meeting in person if possible is really yeah. important. I think as well. Going back to your earlier example, for example, um, with an athlete who, as you said, you know, is the ones who are early specialisation sports because I would argue from what you described, they think too much. They don't, as you said, run and try and jump over the puddle or whatever. They sort of go, start, stop, whatever. Yeah. My first question is, how do you break down the fear factor? Because it's too easy, for example, for us as coaches just to be like, go on, give it a go, you'll be fine sort of thing. Um, yeah. So the first question is, how do you break that fear factor? And I suppose, how do you find an appropriate starting point for that individual who may or may not have the physical capacity, but there's you know a mind block that's getting in the way? Um, I think this is one thing where strength and conditioning strength and conditioning coaches can learn a lot from teachers in that kind of how to break down a skill um, and how to approach the skill from a really you know to regress that movement back down to its basic form and before I before I landed this role I was working in primary schools doing consultancy um, where I'd go in for six weeks and I would deliver volleyball or hockey or football cricket loads of different sports and and that helped me massively in seeing kids who couldn't run, couldn't gallop, couldn't skip and teaching them to do that. Um, now I'm fortunate that I'm working with older kids who don't always, but have a good movement repertoire to kind of um, to delve into and put it into a um, strange voice. Can you I was going to say, hel- helicopter flying, Nick. Coming to get me, coming to take me away. Um, and getting them kind of all of those, just, just trying to break down the movement for them. And it might mean actually that you are getting them to try and jump over something and you give them a bit of a, a bit of a ramp to, to, you know, so in which that they jump over and clear and you start to pull layers away from the movement and week on week you see them progress. Uh, reinforced effort, not always success. So the fact that they do, you know, um, they give it a go and they try 
um, or pair them up with someone who is achieving and is doing it very well and get them to, to coach them through it as well. It makes it really interesting for one, the person who is doing it never thinks about why they are doing it so easily and to get them to explain to their peer why that's a good learning opportunity for them. Um, and then the person who is struggling to do it, listening to their peer, it may be a bit more relatable than me telling them because I'm older, um, maybe a bit less with it and a bit, you know, not, not cool, all those kind yeah. of things. You know? So it's better to put it onto someone then that that's tend to, to help me. But knowing where that starting point is, I think is a, is a reciprocal process with the athlete. So don't be afraid, or I'm not afraid anyway, to involve them. Right, what do you think we should do? Like how high is too high for you? How what's too low? And, and get their buy-in. And then it's they are partly accountable because they've set that standard of themselves and they're they're invested because you know what, they've they've got that control over that, that task. Um, and it's a good way to get them to try and to move forward. And once they get it, it's it's a lovely feeling once they do it and they don't want to stop doing it then. I always find it it's interesting when you give athletes choice comparing for example where you'd have started them to how they start themselves whether it's someone moving on too early or whether it's someone and you're thinking you know physically you've easily got the capabilities of doing you know whatever whatever task it is going back to obviously you've said about relationships being important you've obviously worked in both research and coaching uh you've worked in different professional organizations uh what is your strength and conditioning philosophy and out of interest does this change when you're working with youth athletes versus athletes who are adults who have gone through puberty whatever metric you want to use um i came from a, a coaching degree so my undergraduate was a coaching and conditioning degree and we were encouraged to spend a lot of time just coaching just getting hands-on experience and understanding the the psychology behind actually coaching um, and I think that shaped a lot of my a lot of my um, practice my philosophy is similar it's aligned to actually Gloucester as well is making good people I think I think that's really important for society and as an athlete because they have to be they have to be a, a certain um, how do I say it they, they have to just be able to be respectful responsible have a laugh know when it's appropriate to be a bit silly and when it's not appropriate to be a bit silly um and they, they have to just be more aware of that and i think i can't i can't give you my philosophy in a sentence because i'm still figuring it out um but i think trying to be you know a better person and to create good people that will remember their sport as a as a benefit and as an enjoyable time in their life, not just a, um, you know, not, not worried about the, the anxieties that can come with sport. Um, and what was the, sorry, what was the second part of the question? Does it change? Does yeah, it change? does it change for youth athletes? Um, no, not at all. I think, I think the context, the conversations, the words you use, how you approach someone, of course, will change. If you're working with a year seven, you may be a bit more silly than if you're working with a sixth former who actually needs to be told, you know what, pull your finger out a little bit because you're not doing enough. Whereas with the kid, it might be a little bit more, I want you to try this, um, giving them perhaps a different way of, of looking at it. Um, I do think there is a big, 
a big problem at the moment with youth roles being seen as a stepping stone to senior positions. Yes, absolutely. Um, youth strength and conditioning is a skill and you cannot, you cannot just bypass it. I think it's harder to come down working with senior players, i.e. adults, to work with children. I think it's really interesting. You can tell those who haven't worked with kids before um, and when, when you put them into a room with kind of, um, you know, 20, 11-year-olds, all of those little things, like, not not quite as, as big as, like, right, hands on lips, things and caps on, not that so much, but the way in which you control the room, how you get people to respond, how you get them to sit down and think, um, and, and how you um, portray an expectation or a standard on them, and how you get them to adhere to that, is far different to working with an adult who understands, right, I've got to shut up and listen for 20 seconds and then I get to do what I want. It's, it's different and I don't think it's easy. And I think there's a misconception that being, you know, a strength and conditioning coach, uh, youth positions are lesser. I don't think that's, that's right. Um, I think it's far harder to coach children than it is adults. Um, that's my opinion. I could could be wrong, but I, I do agree. I do feel that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. As I said, as I said offline, uh, comparing personal trainers and strength and conditioning coaches, it's not that strength and conditioning coaches are better than personal trainers or vice versa. They are just fundamentally different. And as you said, it's not that I'll work with the uh, under 11s, then it'll be under 15s, under 18s, and then first team. It's just different skill sets, different roles entirely. You mentioned about obviously taking influences from various different uh, areas. So this is maybe a harsh question to narrow it down to one. But at this current moment in your coaching career, if you could spend a block of time observing a specific coach with a specific athlete, who would you like to observe and why? Um, I've, got, I've got three that are really difficult to choose between. You can name three if you want. Um, let's go for, I'd love to see... Um, I'd love to see Anthony Joshua train and his coach. Yeah. I'd love to spend some time just understanding what the boxing strength and conditioning looks like at a high level. I've spent time with boxing, um, training a boxer, and I was surprised, to put it nicely, with the excessive amounts of volume, which I feel were minimum return on quality. And, and strength and power characteristics, but that's that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, I'd love to see how how those um, how, how force is expressed and the importance of developing strength with sports strength and how they kind of combine. Um, Brett Bartholomew is one that I'd like to spend some time with. See, coach, he's um, published a lot on kind of the, the buy-in of strength and conditioning. Um, I'd like to see how he manages a gym, how he manages a room, not just short term, but over long term. Does he periodize does he periodize his his coaching to get buy-in? You know, does does he have a period where there's familiarization? Um, or does he not? I'm not sure. Like that would be interesting to see. And then just for a bit of a bit of a laugh, really, like a high school, like American football college team. That is just crazy that I've got like a personal be- uh, personal best about and all those things. I'd love to go into one of those gyms where it's just chaotic and there are the whole squad is around squat rack. Not because I agree with it, just for the fun, just to see it, you know, 
yeah. book. That would be fun for me to have a look at and, and try and understand. No, that's brilliant. I think it always makes me laugh when I hear other coaches ripping on stuff like that you've just described and they're like, oh, well, the person with the biggest squat isn't going to be the best player. And it's like, well, no, of course not. We all know that. But I almost think the atmosphere you create, and if you look at any of John Kiley's work when he talks about how the adaptations, even on a cellular, physiological level, whatever, are going to be influenced by the training environment, then like, oh, I'd love to. I, I personally would love to see some kind of study done where you've got that kind of amazing camaraderie and you've got, for example, I don't know, dull as dishwater, someone who trains by themselves, doesn't listen to music, doesn't have interaction with the coaches, just hears your program. And it could be exactly the same one with exactly the same training age and just see what difference in um, improvements are made just by the fact that the only thing that is different is that training environment. Yeah, there's a there's a lot on like organismic uh, organism organism uh, constraints in motor learning and how yeah. we can alter um, how we can kind of alter the environment via personality or competition and all of that. I think there's a lot around music and powerlifting, for example, and how you know um, aggressive heavy heavy metal kind of rock music can increase strength and all of those different things. Yeah. I think. I think there are studies out there that you could nitpick and tailor to that approach. Mm -hmm. I fully agree that there needs to be more done on training environments and how they affect strength and how certain, maybe even certain individuals within a room can control that. Um, I think the coach, um, we have kind of like, with the rugby teams I work with, we have like a free, freeway policy and that is right, like, First of all, have a word with yourself. Then if the team have to have a word with you because you're being a bit of an idiot, that's a problem. And if I, the coach, have to have a word with you, then there's a big problem. And I think adopting that mentality where, not that it's doggy dog world, but that there is a standard and there is a level of, you are jeopardizing my development, stop it, because it's annoying me. I do want that. I do want people of that, you know, you, you want to develop that as a coach. You want your athletes to be in that position where they can spot the people who are going to be a negative um, on their development as an athlete, definitely. Yeah, one of the, as I said earlier in the podcast, one of the buzzwords is make people better. And another buzzword for me in strength conditioning is culture. But for me, the definition of culture is when the players will turn around and be like, hang on a minute, that's not what we stand for. You've got to sort your act out rather than that coming from, I don't know, yeah. a fancy message on the wall about beliefs and values or, like you said, a coach having to step in and make it make it so. Yeah, no, definitely. I think see that at the moment with a, a particular age group I've got. I've got a year seven age group who are 11, 12, and they are incredible. I've never seen anything like it before. If someone's late, they are, why are you late for? Um, because I was kept behind in my maths class. Well, why were you kept behind for? And they were like, and kids, like I was, I was laughing, you know. I, someone drew something funny in a maths book, and they're like, "Well, you're you're putting my session behind." These are eleven-year-old kids who have already got that, uh, and they are they're incredible. And I've got a, another year group who are very good. I'd say around year nine they get there. So around the ages of twelve, thirteen they start to really get it and they start to um, call each other out a little bit if they are being silly, which is nice to see. Um, but yeah, that's, 
it's it's definitely like you say it's nice when they they do that themselves and you don't have to do that that's when you know you've got a good good group and if i have to ever go on cover and sit in a maths lesson or sit in an english lesson because one of the teachers is off ill or whatever and it's nice to have your athletes control the class for you and actually say oh mr greens he's, he's a nice guy let's behave yeah that's a nice thing that's a that's a credit to to them and hopefully to the program as well um but yeah that's that's good as well you know then you're you're hearing it and if they come outside of school and say hello to you that's another nice thing you know you've got a good good kid there if they come out of their way to say hello to you and ask about how your day is um that's that's a good sign for me as well of yeah. a good person. Uh, i, I think I think that's what's important with any sort of buzzword, whether it's culture or making people better, is actually having some tangible objectives to say yes or no. As you said, can they hold a conversation? Can they look me in the eye? Do they ask how my day is once I've asked how their day is? And it's not just to tick that box or to appear nice. They generally care just like you generally care for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely so. My one question or one question before going into key resources and wrapping up is, Obviously, you mentioned gymnastics, you mentioned parkour. How important, in your opinion, is it that a strength and conditioning coach has either coaching or playing experience that is outside of the confines of a strength and conditioning suite? Do you mean so so being a footballer on the side, being a rugby yep. player on the side? Yep. So whether, for example, so granted I compete in uh, powerlifting, but I also mess around with some calisthenic stuff. I had multi-sports um, experience growing up and for example coaching athletics this term i will get outside uh, 20 minutes before the lesson i'll practice throwing the javelin i'll practice throwing the shot but i'll understand what it feels like to be a beginner in the movements again um yeah. so my question is one i suppose on a relatability account of not just coaching people something that you've done yourself for years and two in terms of just being better at coaching movement as opposed to here is a squat here is a deadlift this is a clean does that make more yeah. sense? Yeah, no, massively. Um, I don't think it's a hundred percent necessary. I think you see there are there's a lot of things you see on social media about. Um, don't know how to put this politely, but it's kind of overweight strength coaches, and there's a lot of should they be in the gym? Well, if if their knowledge is second to none, and they can coach and can competently move, like I don't see a problem with that at all. I think it's fine. No, go ahead. I think understanding competition and understanding um, the associated uh, the arousal and the anxiety and the nerves that come with performance um, that's important I feel as a coach to try and sympathize and understand what they are going through and to say I've been there too um, this is what I've done was it right or wrong I'm not sure but this is how I dealt with it um, and for me as well for Without, without it trying to sound um, like the most important thing, the fact that I am quite fast myself and I'm quite strong and I can throw and catch and I can roll and all of that, you know, it's, it's a nice thing for the kids to be able to see you do because they are used to sitting in front of a teacher who doesn't get involved, doesn't make that effort with them to perhaps understand them outside of their, their sport. So for me, when we play you know, a conditioning game hidden in a game of Frisbee, it's quite nice for me to be on the outskirts asking to receive that pass 
throwing it back and being good enough to do that, I think is, is a good thing. Um, you will get buy-in from that. You will get respect from that. And whether that's right or wrong, I'm not sure, but you, you will get that. Um, once the, the kids at school find out I'm quite a good footballer and I'll play football with them, they are, oh, you're, you're not just a teacher. You know, they, they, they don't realise you have a life outside of that. And if you can show them that, um, you, you definitely get more buy-in. Um, I find it massively being quite a, a slight guy. Um, decided to play. One of one of the boys was not in. It was six v seven, so I filled in on a game of touch rugby with them, and they were shocked that I was showing some of them up. <laughs> from but from that moment, and I'm not I'm not a big guy at all, and these are big rugby guys, and I was kind of stepping them. I was bringing in some skills from football, loads of different stuff, and they they loved it. And actually, from that moment on, I felt a switch of this guy's not just doesn't understand rugby but he's just trying to get us into a gym well once they saw that I was just a grown-up version of them who did care about sports did care about them enjoyed sport they were more receptive to what I was getting them to do um but that that takes time um that does take time and I think it takes sometimes swallowing your own pride as well yeah. and putting yourself in the uncomfortable positions and not worrying about falling over and or, or messing up and actually as soon as you do that as soon as you make yourself human you may get some human responses back from the athletes and that's that's the way I look at it brilliant I was gonna say we we had a staff versus students hockey game last year and I've never picked up a hockey get stick in my life but I was like right I'm gonna show them that even if you're bang average at the technical side of things if you've got an engine if you can sprint if you understand movement and for example positional awareness you could be pretty useful for a team and uh I well, actually somehow managed to score, and of course I've never let the uh, our goalkeeper live it down. But say <laughs> to them, right, this is what we're building towards. If you're a decent athlete, you will find it much easier to get on the ball and impact the sport, even if, like me, you're freaking useless with the uh, sports skill itself. Yeah, yeah, and I think you can you can see that. You know, you can put talented, rounded athletes into any sport, and they can be effective. And I think that's where you want that's ideally what you want and that's why we get children into the program of no set sport we develop their athleticism not their football or their rugby or their hockey or their netball we develop their athleticism to them um to so that they can sample those those when they want and when they decide to specialize they've got a well a well-rounded toolbox for the the problems of movement um that's that's where the program is very good and that's where you have to really appreciate the staff you work with the school um and people like james baker and other youth strength and conditioning coaches around the country who are um beating that drum it's really important i think to have that you know sung like sung loudly i think that's a superb place uh, to end things um if people want to reach out to you where can they get in touch with you Ooh, um, probably on Twitter is probably the best place. So it would be um, Thomas Green uh, underscore one. Um, and if they want to read any of my stuff, go on to the um, Science for Sport website and there's an About Us, about us little section. Um, and my kind of what I've written about before, I've done like relative age effect, um, peak weight velocity, early specialization I've just come out with. Um, so that's a cool little, cool little way to, to get in touch. But 
a little bit like we discussed um, at the start, uh, or before, sorry, if I'm really hopefully approachable and will contact people and if they want to talk or if they want to understand um, why I'm doing certain things or why I'm not doing certain things, I'll be more than open to that. So I, I welcome, welcome that conversation if anyone wants it moving forward. Perfect. I'll link all of those in the show notes. And final question, um, in terms of recommended resources, one person to follow slash stalk on social media and maybe like a book or a podcast? Yeah, no, that's, um, so I follow loads of different people and the obvious ones are out there, but one who maybe doesn't get a lot of recognition is, um, there's a guy called Lewis Howe. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. So his, his Twitter is uh, Lewis, so L-O-U-I-S. Um, Howe is H-O-W-E, and then it's underscore S, and then A-N-D, and then C. Um, so like S and C. Yeah. And um, I really like his research because everything that I read that he publishes has a practical element to it. So he always supplements the reader with the why, the, the statistical side, the methods, and then the uh, diagram and progressions and stuff like that. And I, I love that as a coach, I need that. I, I want to read that. I don't want to just look at numbers. Um, I want to know that what, how you've trained them. Um, and, and that he's a really, really interesting guy to follow and to see the research that he, he publishes. Um, with regards to reading, what am I reading at the moment? Um, it's a good, another good question. So I've just finished reading the, um, I don't even know the name of it. That's so bad. <laughs> um, so the athletic skill model. So right, the, okay. I just, just finished reading that book and that was interesting to look through. Um, and, and looking at the theories and how it differs perhaps from, LTAD and uh, the YPD model um, that was interesting to look at and um, Franz Bosch has just brought out a book on agility which I'm going to be reading soon um, not not overly sold on the way in which those exercises are done mm -hmm. but I think the more we read around the area and the more we know about it the more of an educated um, either acceptance or dismissal we can give um, based on it uh, and I think that that will be an interesting one to read, particularly because the curriculum I design is quite agility heavy. Um, is something that I feel is a is a massive skill to give someone um, tools under stressful environments um, is really important. I think for team sports, so that will be good to read as well. And that's what I'm going to be reading in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Superb. Thank you very much for your time, Tom. And as I said, all the links to the resources you've mentioned and your own contact details, I will chuck in the show notes. Thank you very much. Well, no worries. Thank you very much too. Cheers. My absolute pleasure. Take it easy, mate. Bye-bye. Yeah, Thank you for listening to episode 11 of the Platform to Perform podcast. If you want to reach out and get in touch with me, you can search Todd Davidson P2P Coaching on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. The next episode of the Platform to Perform podcast will be with the first guest from the world of tennis uh, in Daz Drake, who is the owner of Athletic Performance Academy. And the episode 13 will be with my powerlifting coach, Charlie Keane, where we discuss all matters 
in terms of building strength for the non-powerlifting athlete. Again, thank you very much for listening. Catch you again in the next episode. Yeah.